Well, if you're anything like me, you like stories. And when it comes to stories, I like the wide lens. I like the broad narratives of stories. I like stories that are, first of all, give me the 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 full picture before we get down into the details. I like the the pictures and the of the puzzle before I get into the details and the pieces of the puzzle. And that's exactly what the book actually that goes with this series, the book, the Bible, Making Sense of Life, a story that makes sense of life. That's exactly what it does. It gives the big picture, the big picture of the Bible and God's intention uh, towards us, towards man. And uh, if there's anything to learn from about the Bible and the book helps us to do this, is this, that God, whenever he wants to move, he often looks for a person. He'll look for a man, he'll look for a woman. Usually he'll choose a person, person who is unqualified. And then he'll reveal himself to that person. And in revealing himself, he kind of reveals his nature to that person. Such a person is the one like Abraham. And just previously uh, in the series, we've been learning about the, in the, from the book of Genesis, how God created the heavens and the earth and all the beauty that he made. And then somehow all this got distorted and destroyed by sin. And now God is going to reverse all that. And by the time you get to chapter 12, you meet a man called Abraham. His name at that point, Abraham. And God goes to this man. God is going to use this man to do what he wants to do, to redeem, to bring redemption. He's going to use him as a, re, as a kind of picture of a redeemer, what God can do with a man who is unqualified in every way. In fact, when God came to Abraham, Abraham wasn't looking for God. What we do know about his life is that his father had died. And what we do know about his father is that his own son had died. So Abraham's brother had died and then Abraham's father had died. In fact, when his brother died, the father said, get up, we're moving. And they begin to move. And it's in the middle of the journey, the father dies. And so now we have a guy, Abraham, who has got death on one side and the other. And he's not searching for God. But doubtless must be living with a degree of pain. It's into that that God comes to him. It turns out God is also seeking, looking for people who were lost. God comes to him and this is how he begins with him. He says to him, listen, Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. What a statement. I'll make you a great nation. He says, and then I will bless you. He says, I will make your name great. So great, in fact, that you will become a blessing to other people. The picture is that you're so full of blessing that it pours out of you wherever you go. And that same blessing would go beyond, therefore, go beyond Abraham. It will go to his son, Isaac. It will go beyond him. It will go to his grandson, Jacob. It will go beyond him. It will go to the whole nation of Israel. And then all of this is giving us a feel for the character of the God of heaven. And the nature of the blessings that is all over the Bible, however you want to uh, describe it, it's got fulfillment of destiny in it. It's got fullness of life in it. And it's got freedom in life in it. And it's that word freedom that probably most captures the heart of the book of Exodus. From Genesis, now we're in Exodus. Freedom is that possession in life that most people take for granted until they lose it. 
They take it for granted until they lose it. And it takes various forms. We're talking here about freedom of speech sometimes. We talk about freedom of speech. We're talking about freedom of expressions. We talk about freedom of actions. We talk about freedom in so many ways. But true freedom, the Bible will tell us that true freedom actually has to do with knowing who made you, who you were made to be, the purpose for which you are here, and the blessing that can come from your life to other people. In other words, true freedom happens on the inside, but it's connected to the one who made us and us living a life for the purpose for which he made us. And so it cannot be found in the pedigrees. Uh, you know, I grew up in a wealthy home, therefore uh, I, I am free, I can do whatever. We actually, in the end, we find out <laughs> there are people who live in high castles and still are bound. It got, cannot be found in prospects of life because I'm wealthy or I have. I, it cannot be found in, in substances. It cannot really be found. Ultimate freedom at its, in its, at its purest state, it cannot be found in people. It is found only in God. It certainly cannot be found in possessions. <laughs> this brings me actually to the story of one of the main characters in the book of Exodus, his name, Moses. Because he's a guy that had a lot of wealth. <laughs> Here's his story in a nutshell. Moses is actually born a Hebrew. He's born a Hebrew in Egypt, where his people, the Hebrews, are slaves in Egypt. So he's born into Egypt, he's born into slavery, and then he's born into a time that is not compatible with life if you're a little boy being born. Because uh, the Pharaoh at that time wanted boys, boys to be killed. And so here he is being born, he's born a boy, the mother tries to keep him safe and hide him away, but knows it's only a matter of time before he is found. And so it is that she very, very puts a plan together. She basically gives him away. What do you do? You might as well give your son away to somebody that you think will probably, probably not have him killed. Somehow, one of the uh, Egyptian women, high class who lives in the palace, sees him, takes him in, and basically adopts him. I mean, she, she wanted him, she adopted him, and she raised him. But she raised him as an Egyptian. So that by the time Moses grew, he's a Hebrew now, but he grew up in the palace of Egypt. He grew up with the customs of Egypt. He grew up with the wealth of Egypt. He grew up with the privileges and the prospects of Egypt. If you had seen Moses at that young age of a fine young man, you would have thought he could have whatever he was. There he goes, a man totally free, except he wasn't. Except he wasn't free. He wasn't free because on the inside, he was a Hebrew, but on the outside, he's an Egyptian. Everybody would have looked and seen him as an Egyptian. He would have grown up thinking he was an Egyptian, but at some point, he must have realized he's a Hebrew. And then he sees his own people, the Hebrews, are slaves. And he has such a contention on the inside. When people have no freedom, something is wrong on the inside and there's really, there's no peace. If there's a litmus test to know if you have real total freedom is do you have total and complete peace with self, with those around? Moses did not have that. And in therefore wanting to help his own people, the Hebrews, he goes to separate a fight on one occasion and gets a bit over the top, you know, he ends up killing a man. 
And in killing the man, the people, everyone is like, whoa, stay away from us. So now, <laughs> his own people don't want him. He's in trouble with the Egyptians because he's just killed a man. And so he flees. He runs away. He ends up in a wil the wilderness. And he's wandering and floundering and basically dying. When there's no freedom in a life, life feels like that. Like it's going around in circles with no direction. But now he's left Egypt. Now he's free to be whatever Hebrew he wants to be. But he's still not free. In other words, <laughs> we are learning here that fortune doesn't free. That, you know, fleeing and running doesn't free. That fighting your way through doesn't free. Because freedom, as given by God, true freedom, is something that happens on the inside. And yet, when you look at his life in the book of Exodus, we find a man who at the end of his days, he gets freedom. But that, not just does he get freedom, he becomes one who God uses to then give freedom. And therefore, as we look at the book of Exodus, as we look to use this book, the Bible, uh, you know, making sense of life, helping us catch the broad narrative of the Bible, and when beginning to grasp what true freedom looks like, we realize this is, these are not just stories about them in antiquity. These are stories about us today. Because you see, at some time or another, we all realize we all have hang-ups. It could be emotional bondage that dogs us from the past and you somehow can't shake it off. It could be guilts that have happened, things that happened in the past, and they leave the debris of guilt on the inside of our souls, and we cannot erase it. It could be fears that have a way of crippling or handicapping a person in life, where yes, they can still move, they can still function, but to function fully and to be totally free, that's the bit that is missing. And it happens in their various ways. Sometimes it's things that we've done and it's our fault. Sometimes it has a sense of, you know what, I didn't do anything. I was just born into it like Moses. It can feel like fate. And then other times it can feel like there's another force that is making this thing happen and keeping me in bondage. It's to all of that I want to ask the question, then how does one get free? Because the book of Exodus teaches us exactly that. How does one get free? I think number one, freedom begins with an encounter. And the book we're using for the series bears this out. Freedom begins with an encounter. Moses is now in the wilderness and he's going to spend his years in the wilderness for so many years, up to 40 years, walking around is simply a shepherd. And he would have known all that terrain and he would have gone around it many times, probably thinking and wondering, now thinking everything he's lost. Was that worth it? Was that not? Is this what my life is all about? This is not a man that is free. Is a man bedeviled now with all that had happened in the past. One of those days where he's going around, he sees a fire. He sees the bush burn. He goes close to it. But this is no ordinary thing because the bush is on fire, but it's not being consumed. It's a bit like someone had superimposed flames on it and yet it's on fire, but it's not being consumed. He, he, he couldn't understand it. 
And thankfully, the Bible tells us that he moved a little closer to see this thing, at which point he hears a voice that calls him by name and says to him, take off your sandals. Because the ground in which you're standing is holy ground. Moses has an encounter. That encounter is the beginning of his freedom. Freedom begins with an encounter. And here's the thing. As it was for Moses, it is for us. The encounter doesn't have to be dramatic. But it is always powerful in its simplicity. That's why I love the story of Finney. I could tell you this story myself, but it's better for him to tell it to you. Watch this. I was a drug dealer. I was suffered from uh, mental health issues. I was dealing in um, uh, cannabis and amphetamines mainly. Um, and what I was making, I was using drug dispute with a fellow drug dealer um, that led to quite a serious offence. I was almost charged with attempted murder. Miraculously, they dropped the charges to aggravated burglary and threats to kill. As I was remanded into um, HMP Exeter, I was put into my cell, which was nothing new, nothing unusual. It was something that I'd been used to uh, time and time before. But for this time round, there was something different that I noticed in that prison cell, and it was the Bible. As I open this Bible that I feel unusually drawn to, I feel God saying, if you want to know more about my truth, you need to start living and speaking truth. If you can imagine a man wrapped in, wrapped in chains, that was me. When I was in my prison cell all those years ago, I didn't have to be in prison to be a prisoner. I was a prisoner on the outside wrapped in all those chains of addiction, of mental health disorders. And the only thing that's changed my life outside of the prison system is the Word of God, is the Bible. So every now and then I'd be in my prison cell and I'd, I'd read a scripture and Ching, one of those chains, one of those padlocks would just fall off and that chain would feel a little bit looser. And then a couple of days later, I'd be reading something else, somewhere else in the Bible. And ching, another padlock would fall off and that chain would feel a little bit looser until the point where my four years were up and I was walking out the doors of HMP, High Point. And I was really walking out a free man because those chains were gone. But the only thing that's changed my life from what it was to what it is now is the Word of God. Like Moses, like Finney, freedom begins with an encounter. And that encounter often brings us to acknowledge God for who he is, is what Moses is realizing, is what Finney is grasping as he's opening up the Bible for the first time. Is acknowledge God, not just that, to acknowledge ourselves. When Moses sees this burning bush and the voice says to him, take off your shoes, Take off your sandals. Where you are is holy ground. Imagine now he basically takes it off, lays it to the side so that his feet can touch the earth and his creatureliness can really uh, grasp him. The nature of his own creatureliness in the face of this almightiness of God and a voice that is speaking to him. This is an incredibly awesome moment that is happening with this man, Moses. Take off your shoes that you may feel so that he can realize who he really is compared to this mighty holy one that he's encountering. Oh, 
to us to acknowledge God, but then to acknowledge ourselves, acknowledge truth, acknowledge our weakness, our creatureliness. And those two moments have a way of then helping us to acknowledge our need. When you meet the one who is holy, sometimes we recognize our own poverty state and we realize, I need help. Exodus Book of Freedom is teaching us that freedom begins with an encounter. But not just that, freedom involves confrontation. If real freedom is to be had, it always involves some kind of confrontation that happens. See, Exodus is really a story not just of a man, but of a man who God is going to use to liberate a nation. It's about the freedom of a nation. A nation that is God's people. They had gone far from God. They ended up in Egypt and under the regime, the wicked regime of a wicked Pharaoh. In fact, for you to grasp how Pharaoh saw these people as slaves, he didn't just want them as slaves. He wanted them to have a horrible life as slaves. And so it is that he actually says in Exodus chapter 1 and verse 14, the Bible tells us there that they made the lives of the Israelites hard. And with rigor is what one Bible verse translation puts. With rigor. That word rigor, it captures the idea of they were belittled, they were broken, and made their lives bitter. Bitter is the idea of eating, eating uh, certain herbs that are so bitter that when you go, go on to eat other Sweet things, it doesn't matter. The bitterness overshadows the sweetness of life. So that the whole of their life, they're belittled, they're broken, they're bitter, and they're in bondage. And yet, and yet these people got delivered by God. The God of heaven, he delivered them. He would take them from darkness into light. He would make them this motley crew of slaves. He's going to make them later on into an army. He's going to take these people who are basically slaves and servants. He's going to make them sons sons of his, people with value. And how did he do it? He did it, first of all, he delivered them by miracles. He began to do miracles through Moses, would you believe it? He built deliverance by miracles, water that was turned into blood. Uh, frogs everywhere on one occasion. These are the 10 plagues that happened in Egypt. Lice everywhere so people could barely, they couldn't live. Locusts that came, thunder that broke out from the heavens that made everyone shake and chagrin to a spot. One of my favorite ones is darkness. You know, the Bible describes and says the darkness was so dark that people didn't move. You could feel a darkness that you could feel. Think about that. See, we live in cities today with light pollution everywhere. We have no real regard or understanding of what real darkness is like. It says this darkness was so dark, people could walk and almost like feel the darkness. Think about that. The fear that that would have put in the hearts of anybody, of everybody. They were, they were awesome, frightening, scary moments. But there's something I don't want you to miss in all that. Because as God is, he, all these plagues are not just the random acts of a capricious God. No. Each one of them are strategic. Because with each one of them, God is undermining the gods that the Egyptians worshipped. They worshipped frogs and they worshipped the river Nile. And they worshipped everything that they worshipped. One by one, he began to undermine it and wreck everything to put Doubt in their hearts concerning their God and confidence in the hearts of the Hebrews concerning 
the God of heaven. He delivered them by miracles. Not just that, he destined them by promises. That's how he brought them out. These are the confrontations that God entered into on their behalf. Real confrontation. And that now by promises, he destined them with promises. In Exodus chapter 6 and from verse 6, God tells them right off the bat, from the beginning, what he would do for them. He says to them, I will bring you out from the burdens under which you are. I'm going to deliver you from slavery. I'm going to redeem you with my outstretched arm. I'm going to make you my people. And then I will be your God. And I will bring you to the land that I promised to Abraham all those ages ago in Genesis. I'm going to bring you. I'm going to bring you to a land that I have promised. And I will give it to you as a possession. Seven times God says, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. He virtually Marrying them to himself, one might say. But there's a bigger point. He didn't just want to save them from Egypt. He's showing them what he's saving them for. A promised land. This is what true freedom looks like. Being saved from, being saved for. He delivered them by miracles. He destined them by promises. And then he sustained them by the supernatural. When they came out of Egypt <laughs> into the wilderness... Well, he led them. He led them by cloud. Just a a cloud there in the sky where in the daytime they could just follow the cloud. That's how they knew where to go. These are slaves. Slaves don't know how to read maps. They don't know the terrain. But they had a special GPS in the skies. Would you believe it? And so they just followed and walked together. The cloud. Not just that, at night time, they had a pillar of fire, just fire, a huge ball of fire burning in the night so that they could see in the desert, so that they could see what they do, so that they could do life together, so that they could recognize that the presence of this holy God remains and abides with them. Food, he would give them food in the desert. Matter, they would have food fall from heaven. Every morning, freshly delivered. We get impressed with Deliveroo and Uber these days. God has been doing it a long time. We get impressed by GPSs. God has been doing it a long time. He gave them water that came out of a rock. That's how he watered them. Water that came right out of a rock. All of this, these are just incredible. He sustained them by the supernatural. Probably the most famous of all of them, repeated many times in the New Testament, is that he brought them out through the Red Sea. What a miracle. They came out of Egypt. The Egyptians are coming after them. They hit the Red Sea, not sure what to do. God says to Moses, whose God is using as a deliverer, take your staff pointed. He does that and the Red Sea completely opens. I would have loved to have stood and watched. Imagine it. The sea opens. It doesn't just open. It forms a wall, walls of water on either side. And then the Egyptians will have had to walk down into the seabed. And then they will have had to walk into the seabed. Then they will have had to walk out of it on the other side. And then they, will have had, then they could get to walk off into the promised land. Absolutely astounding and amazing. You know, if Finnish story teaches us anything, if this book uh, on the book of on the on the Bible and uh, making sense of life teaches us anything, it is simply this: that freedom happens in stages. It begins with an encounter. It involves confrontation, but then, uh, thirdly, it requires obedience. 
When God brought them out, he let them know, I brought you out that I might bring you into something. But in between those two things, he's going to call them aside to his, <laughs> to his home on earth, one might say. He takes them to a mountain, Mount Sinai, and he begins to tell them about himself. He begins to let them know his presence is on Mount Sinai. This is who I am. But not just that, he gives them his principles for life. And they are in the form of the Ten Commandments, where he says to them, listen, listen, now that I have saved you, that you may know how this thing works, that I may forever be your God and be all around you, that things may work well for you so that the freedom that was fought for is not lost. He says, number one, you shall have no other gods before me. In other words, no other gods, not in front of me, not instead of me, not in place of me, no other gods. And to make that real clear, don't even draw my picture anywhere. Because I know what will happen. You will have my picture. You will make graven images before you know it. Instead of, you, you're going to start it off by saying, ah, this is an image to remind us of God. Before you know it, you're going to start worship, worshiping the image. No, no carved images of me anywhere. I don't want it. Other people with other gods would do those kinds of things. He says, no, not me. No other gods before me. No carved images. And when it comes to my name, have some respect. Don't call my name in vain. Because my name is powerful is what God is trying to let them know. My name makes things happen and move. Do not take my name in vain, lest it be devoid of its power on your lips. Is the idea. That don't take my name in vain. And by the way, I am your God. Worship me is what he's saying. Worship me all your days. In fact, you're going to always take one day out to rest, to pull back. And that day shall be a Sabbath. A day for you to pull back and rest, to re let it be clear. My life doesn't go well just because I work hard. You're going to rest on purpose that your life goes well because I take care of you. And therefore you worship me. And just so we're clear, family matters to me. Therefore, honor your father and mother. Life matters to me. Therefore, do not murder. Faithfulness matters to me. Therefore, do not commit adultery. Honesty matters to me. Therefore, do not steal. Integrity matters to me. So don't ever bear false witness. And contentment matters to me. Thou shalt not covet. He's telling them right up so that they know the God whom they serve, His presence will always abide. And these are His principles. To flip all the way to the New Testament, Jesus Christ would come and he would give the same commandment. But he would summarize it into two sentences. The first half about God, the second half about people. Well, he says the first half is this in Mark chapter 12 and verse 10. says, you shall love the Lord thy God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. You shall love God. That's why you're not going to take his name in vain. You're not going to have other gods besides you. You're not going to make graven images. You shall love the Lord thy God. And then the second half of the Ten Commandments, he covers by saying, and you shall love thy neighbor as yourself. You shall love your neighbor. If you love your neighbor now, you're not committing adultery. You're not stealing. You're not cheating. You're not lying. You're not coveting. He summarizes it in those two things. This Jesus is the one that brings freedom today for you and I. That beyond Moses, we have Jesus. And just as Moses brought them out 
of the of Egypt and brought them out from Egypt in order, not in order to set them up for the promised land, Jesus came. And he did exactly that. And he did it for people who are in a bad way, who lack, who do not have freedom. He did it for the purpose of removing bondages and freeing them. But there is one main difference, critical difference between Moses and Jesus. You see, when he came to the Israelites, God said to them, go on, I'm here, cross over the Red Sea and come to this side, to the promised land. But with Jesus, he doesn't stand and say cross. He comes down and he comes to the other side. He comes to where you are and he picks you up and piggybacks you all the way back to a kingdom that he has prepared, his own kingdom. He is the one that really does do the crossing. He is the one who died on the cross. The next time you see a cross, let me remind you, not just of a Christ who died on the cross for you, but on a Christ who came down that he might carry you across from the old into the new. And he did it for those who are in bondage, for those who are bruised, and that may be you, for those who are broken by the lies that people have spoken over them and they can't seem to mend it or get better, for those who have been belittled by other people who have said you cannot amount to much, for those who are in homes and in families, for those who've grown up in situations that are so hard, they feel bound to lies from the past. This same Jesus, the deliverer, the freedom giver, is coming to say, you know what, just as it happened in the Old Testament, you too can have an encounter today. Just as it happened in the Old Testament, you too can actually have all the things that are looking like you could never beat it, he can confront it on your behalf and then begin to help you get free in stages. Like just like Finney said, bit by bit by bit, he got free. Why would Jesus do this? Because he said, I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly.